Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis of uh, Peachtree Hoops. And I guess, Glenn, my opening question to you is, my initial feeling tonight was that when Grace and Allen dove in the vicinity of the back of Bogdan Bogdanovich's legs tonight, the, the retaliation would be the flagrant one foul that uh, Solomon Hill picked up a few minutes later. And it turns out that it really happened with 90 seconds left in the game and Trey Young driving to the basket with a three-point lead. And he went behind his back and threw his own legs on the same dribble with Allen guarding him. <laughs> he sent Jonas Valanciunas uh, lurching forward towards the free throw line trying to steal behind the back pass. And then he scored. So was that the real retaliation? Yeah, I think maybe that's the marker you look for in a young star going from year two to year three is they don't rely on these external variables to kind of even the score, so to speak, or to make things right after something like that happens on the court. They just take things into to their own hands. And I had to go back and, and watch that. And I don't know if it, it reminded you of this, but it reminded me of the the play he made on Michael Porter Jr. last year. Um, except for this year, it was two defenders. Uh, this game, it was two defenders that he was manipulating. Last year, uh, MPJ just went straight for the supposed behind the back pass, and, and it looked worse because it was just kind of a one-on-one play. But um, for people who might, you know, have the bandwidth like we do to go back and watch it again, it is. It was. Uh, satisfying i guess i'll say in some ways to see him manipulate two defenders that were um mostly in between him and the basket um both basically leaned for if not you know sent their momentum towards that behind the back pass that they were sure was coming and uh on top of that it was a huge huge bucket in the game on the way to the hawks went too so yeah it was a three-point game 90 seconds left and he scored and you know i think part of the reason that that play isn't going to get enough love is that we basically got one camera angle of it, and one of the Grizzly defenders kind of got in the way of that camera angle right when he went through his own legs. So, like, a whole lot of the shine is lost. You can't see it. Like, if you could see it from the baseline angle, it would be pretty jaw-dropping. But uh, really impressive stuff nonetheless. Anyways, uh, I, w- I won't say I digress because that was maybe the best play and most important play in a... Uh, a, a nicely fought competitive game, but uh, you know the Hawks were shorthanded and playing a team that, for all intents and purposes, beat them twice in the preseason in pretty convincing fashion. Uh, what do you think the Hawks did right, in spite of the shorthanded roster that they had? Well, for me, it was all about defensive connectivity. And really, uh, even though, you know, John Morant is obviously the, the, the player on the team you worry most about when it comes to, you know, what, what you're going to focus on as a defense. And, you know, there were a few times he slipped uh, to his left in the pick and roll and, and got to those spots where he likes with those runners. Sometimes he'll set himself up for um, kind of a spin back towards his right hand. But, he, you know, he, like any young um, dynamic score. He has a number of things he likes to get to, and he 
you know, there were times he had a little string of a few possessions where he had it working and he saw a few shots, shots, go, saw a few shots goes down. And the, that's the thing that jumped out to me is, you know, what I was, you know, kind of observing to see what would happen would be like last year, you know, they would, as coaches in the NBA say, they would quote, let go of the rope. Um, if that were going to happen today, once, you know, you know, a few, you know, two or three possessions in a row where, Memphis got what they wanted, mostly on the back of John Morant, and each time they stayed collected, um, they found a way to get connected on the defensive end of the court. They did it with different lineups on the court. And so it was just that continuity and that it, it wasn't like A-plus defensive organization on the court, but it was you know a good solid B, probably. And then if you want to give any extra points for just stick, sticking to the plan and implementing the plan, um, regardless of kind of situation or regardless of, you know, you know, brief periods of adversity, then maybe you bump that up to a, a B plus. That's, that's how I see it anyway. But just that willingness to remain on solid footing and not completely lose control of the game when Memphis would get a little bit of a run going was the major thing that looked very different from the way they looked last year to be. Yeah, one of the things that I was watching out for mostly based on who they had and who they didn't have available to them was how physical could they be? Because playing Memphis, you know, you've got a point guard and a center in Ja and Valanchunas who both sort of jointly test your physicality. They're both such physical players and they're usually working in concert. And with the Hawks missing, Capella... Gallinari, um, you know, I was just worried that they weren't going to have enough physicality on the floor, um, and that the, you know, the, the, especially at the center position, because they were just going to get pushed around. And you know, I thought Collins, Hunter, uh, and to some extent, even Trey Young, sort of upped their physicality in this game to kind of deal with that sort of thing. Uh, what what style of defense were the Hawks using? Like, what did they go to? What did they mix into the different types of coverages that uh, were, they were showing Memphis? Yeah, it's it, it it evoked a little bit of what like their second unit showed in the second preseason game against them in the fourth quarter, uh, and they showed it for maybe three or four possessions before in that game the Grizzlies just rolled out basically a G league lineup and it, right, right, you know, right. and, the, and you can't really just make too much of it apart no. from the fact that the, okay, they got organized and, you know, things like that. Um, but the, what, what they were, what I saw was that they were showing multiple bodies at the free throw line. Uh, when Morant's coming off of a screen, whether that's in a high pick and roll or whether it was in the third quarter going to fourth quarter, when Memphis went towards um, more of a horns, uh, um, set mm-hmm. to try to create multiple screeners in that in that um, in the half court. Yep, uh, and and that got that's when Morant got loose a little bit was when Taylor Jenkins made that adjustment and and moved them away from just the traditional high pick and roll into the horn set, which gave mm-hmm. Morant multiple options there. Um, but they just continued to show multiple bodies at the free throw line. If um, you know the weak side wink would pull all the way into the free throw line. Um, the big was mostly in a, in a drop, but would show his body closer to the free throw line than to like the restricted circle, for example. 
as they were trying to send Jaw was you're not driving to the paint in this game. You guys are going to generate <laughs> buckets uh, in some other fashion. And they lived with Dylan Brooks, you know, you know, putting up I think as many shots as Jaw did in this game. And they lived with Kyle Anderson, who had a really good Kyle Anderson game for sure. Um, but you know, they lived with him creating shots off the dribble, you know, and and that's what good NBA defenses do. They don't just, you know, go shut the opposing team down on every single possession. They make choices and they the version of control I think you look for when you're trying to step towards even like the Hawks are towards like being a mediocre defense is you just start to take the other team's you know first and second preferred options away and make them go somewhere else. And that's what they did by crowding bodies into the paint, pulling in help from the weak side. Uh, they even went to a zone for a little while. Um, I think that was when Morant was out of the game that they went to that for a little while um, and, and such. But mostly whether they were in zone or whether they were in, you know, the big dropping and pulling in the extra bodies from the weak side, they were just packing the paint and uh, letting the Grizzlies secondary uh, playmakers and shooters, you know, kind of have – uh, their shot, you know, and they live with results and it, it kind of worked out that, it, you know, for example, that I remember in the second preseason game, like I think Anthony Melton hit like four out of five threes and he's a sub 30% shooter. Not, no one shot like way over their head right? Uh, on the Memphis side in this game, uh, but that's not something to, you know, ding the Hawks for. They took control in the form of directing the Grizzlies offensive opportunities to their secondary and tertiary um, offensive players. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that Kevin Herter noted after the game was that, and I think this is kind of the pack the paint mentality that, you know, in addition to like the drop coverages that, that you noted that they were going under some screens to try to make life easier for their bigs, try to keep the bigs out of foul trouble. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that happened early on was, well, actually two things and not really related. Uh, John Collins early in the game was trying to front Valanciunas a little bit with, you know, getting some help behind him. He also got into foul trouble, but he got into foul trouble like, you know, contesting smalls in transition or something like it was, it wasn't, that wasn't really the fronting that got him in foul trouble, but that was something they did early on that I didn't see as much later. Um, what, what was... What was the plan in terms of, uh, you know, besides maybe going under the screens, what, what was the plan to kind of, and and you mentioned packing the paint already, but like who were they putting on jaw? How are they switching? Like what was the, what was the plan when they, when they, when you get a real physical point guard who's, you know, came into the league or came into tonight, the number one scorer in the NBA because he had 44 in the first game. Yep. But, uh, you know, what did you see in terms of uh, personnel that they wanted to use on jaw? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, it's interesting that uh, Coach Pierce decided to go with um, DeAndre Hunter on Morant um, after made made buckets on after like dead ball turnovers. Any opportunity they had to get back and get their defense set, it was Hunter on Morant. And um, it's interesting to think of it this way because I don't recall Hunter picking up any. Uh, fouls on Morant, at least not any, you know, tic-tac fouls like on the perimeter or anything like that. Um, it, it, it's interesting to think of that because Hunter wasn't the best um, point of attack defender. He wasn't the best player they had even on last year's team at keeping his man in front of him. 
And I thought in this game, he just showed the improvement he's made uh, keeping himself centered and balanced when he's defending on ball and and to not uh, have the goal of not letting Jog get anywhere past him, but making him have to really work to get past him. And then once you know Jog got you know a little bit of leverage on him to steer him towards where there's help as opposed to just completely giving up the pass straight to the center of the rim. So on after May baskets and other opportunities to set your defense, it was Hunter. Um, in other situations where they had to rush back uh, and get matched up, it was just like it was in the first game versus Chicago. It was basically Trey um, and traditional kind of point guard responsibility style, Trey rushing back and being the first one to kind of match up and in most cases accounting for jaw. Um, and I thought Trey did a, a solid job of that. And one thing that was different in this game was that Trey got into the heart of the Memphis defense more often and so there were times where Trey was not in position to rush back, like after a missed floater or whatever it was. And they struggled a little bit to kind of sort out, well, when Trey can't be the one getting back, um, who's going to who's gonna do that? Um, they, they weren't terrible at it, but that was one of the areas where they um, tended to give up what easy points they gave up was tend to be kind of in that area. So Hunter after made baskets, Trey getting back in possession otherwise, some cases where you're not able to get matched up in the way that you want. And they did just well enough in that third category, I think, to you know not let Jock go completely crazy uh, like he did kind of in the in their first game, even though it was a loss to San Antonio. Yeah. Um, what about the offense? Like, to me, it felt like the offense was puttering to start, and Kevin Herter gave him a huge boost. And then Nathan, Nathan Knight gave them a little bit of boost. I, I said to Brad, or I messaged Brad, and I was like, he's, he's kind of got that Thomas Bryant vibe going. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Thomas Bryant, you know, Thomas Bryant's made a nice NBA career for himself. So that, that's not a, not a knock in any sense. Um, but he gave them a boost. And then Trey, you know, I, I made a typo on my Twitter account. I was trying to say that he was, performing like a maestro in the second half and I I don't remember which letter it was I left out but it it made it look like a complete mess but he just felt like he was so in control in the second half like he didn't shoot particularly well in this game so like box score wise it's not going to look that great but just in terms of like tempo and game feel how he used his rhythm how he disrupted the Grizzlies trying to apply three-quarter court pressure on him it just felt like he was in just utter control of the game. Like it never felt like the offense was going to have any trouble in the second half just because Trey had the reins. Yeah. And that's what, you know, players at his level, or we might say at the level he's trying to fully establish himself to, that's what they do is when they have an opportunity to put a game away in the, in the last say two or three minutes, they just seize complete control of the game. He did that by, you know, in a lot of different ways, I remember the play at near half court where you got Dylan Brooks on his back and just stopped, um, <laughs> you know, in Steve Nash fashion, you know, we might mm-hmm. say. Um, there were other times he, you know, pulled a little Harden kind of coming off of screens. And if you're going to get physical with him when he's working off a screen, he's going to collect your contact and get himself to the free throw line. And, and on top of that, the best scorers in the league, when their perimeter shot's not falling, that's when they – make an adjustment and find ways to get themselves to the free throw line. Right. Sometimes that can get you going. Yeah. And as 
a perimeter shooter, that didn't work out for trading this game. But otherwise, it just gives you you know a path towards generating the production your team needs from you. And Trey just figured it out. And you know the thing that um, was really kind of a stark comparison for me was Jaw getting frustrated late and picking up that technical foul after he, I think it was Collins, he felt had fouled him. I went back right. and looked at the play, and he didn't have much. I think that's right. I think it was more frustration just in how thing, how he wasn't able to ascend in the game in the way that Trey had. Is my guess is what was going on with him. Um, and then you know I think just it was one of those things where Hunter was just physical with him the whole game and and made him really work for every you know spot on the floor he could get to, and that just built up the frustration level there. And you know when you think about what the Grizzlies did to the Hawks last year, <coughs> excuse me, what the Grizzlies did to the Hawks last year. Um, you know, they maybe the Grizzlies thought this was going to come a little bit more easily to them than it did in the end, obviously, with, with, with the loss. But, yeah, that's what, what we saw from Trey, especially late, and especially like, to your point, considering the fact that he really couldn't find a way to knock down shots. The one three-point shot he made was probably his worst attempt <laughs> in the game. <laughs> um, uh, but the, just the way that he found... Um, a means to take complete control of the game is, I think, really, really encouraging for where he is two games into his third year in the league. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned in talking about Trey was, you, know, you mentioned Steve Nash and then James Harden. And one of the things that, you know, I've, I've seen bandied about with respect to Harden over the past few years is that he's a master at deceleration. You know, we normally talk of athletes and how fast they are and how well they can accelerate but i thought you know trey in this game did a masterful job of of deceleration in the instance where he got dylan brooks on his back for that foul at half court he did it um you know there's just so many instances that you know once the screen disrupts the initial pick and roll coverage you know he's he kind of puts the defense at his mercy with regard to accelerating and decelerating if he wants to create a foul, he's going to decelerate. If he wants to go to try to score, he's going to accelerate. They don't really know which one's coming, and he just he just conducts it like it's it's just it's just him orchestrating at that point. Yeah, that's not a question. Mean, that's just a comment. <laughs> this is your podcast. You're allowed comments in addition to questions, Kevin. Um, but you know the, the the passing too, and that was more throughout the game. He closed the game definitely as a scorer. Uh, not that there weren't any, um, you know, say the last six minutes of the game. Not that there weren't any possessions where he operated as a passer, but you could see he embraced the, the score mentality late in this game. Um, but I remember um, a possession I think in the second quarter where the Grizzlies were just a little slow to get matched up. It was after I think a substitution or two on their side and he anytime you are the slightest bit late getting matched up Trey's going to hit it uh, find a hit ahead pass and yep. create a shot for somebody. That, it that, was Hunter uh, I think Well the one I'm thinking of was Herter oh. on the right wing there. I think the pass actually went to Hunter and then there was basically one defender on the two is uh, Herter ended up being the right. open guy. You're right. Um, and then I remember a case, uh, you know, a beautiful play that um, a little peek behind the curtain will probably show up in my follow-up on to this game on P3 Hoops. But uh, there was um, a, 
a situation where Herter was cutting from the right wing. Uh, this is in the fourth quarter, I think, towards the bucket, just as Collins was moving from sort of the left, um, the left side of the of Trey to the bucket, and somehow I don't know, I didn't, I, I couldn't see that he saw Herter, but somehow Collins just knew to immediately stop right where he was, which created a beautiful passing lane from Trey to Herter. Uh, for a layup that was a, a big bucket in the game at that point in time. So you know he yeah, was, and I think Cam did, you know, like Cam had a rough game. Let's be let's be fair. Like really the, there was one game. hog that had a rough game. I think it was Cam Reddish, but the the Grizzlies kind of trapped Cam on that play, and so he kind of just used Trey as a release valve. And if you if you're gonna have a release valve, like that's a good one to have because Trey read it perfectly. John made a good read, and and Kevin found himself alone at the rim. Yeah, and and it and it took. Trey, Kevin, and, and Collins, you know, which with all the roster turnover, you kind of like, you just kind of like to see that the, a few of the guys that carried over from last year are finding that chemistry and finding right. that intuitive ability to kind of execute on the fly. That's nice to see in the midst of all the other changes that everybody's dealing with. Um, and then the other thing for me, you know, whether offense or defense or whatever, I thought Lloyd Pierce had a good game, you know, today. I thought, you know, he closed with Bogdanovich, who had a terrible shooting, you know, quarter, if not first half in the game. They closed with Bogdanovich instead of Reddish, uh, you know, that uh, at the end of the game, which was nice to get, um, uh, you know, Bogdanovich, I think, is easily a more physical player at this point uh, than Reddish is, and which is just critical to, you know, when you're dealing with John Morant, who's going to try to, you know, be a bully, you know, in his dribble attack, and just to right. get one more strong body there. Um, and then, you know, with Collins foul trouble, he sat Collins for a long stretch in the first half. Uh, and he had the, I thought the, he was, you know, I don't, courageous might be too strong of a word, but to just roll with Nathan Knight when he was playing well, a completely unproven guy. Um, and then he, you know, he moved Bruno into the starting lineup coming out of the half uh, to mm -hmm. just bring another body at Valanchunas, I think, and, you know, protect Collins from having, potentially more foul trouble dealing with Valentinus by himself. So I, right. you know, I, I yeah, that's smart. Was... And, you know, he had, he knew he had Nathan Knight in his pocket at that point. Right. Like, he didn't know that going into this game. Like he didn't know that he could expect to get something out of Nathan Knight. And after the first half, he's like, okay, maybe Nathan Knight can do something. So I don't need to keep Bruno as a reserve. Let's just toss him out there to start the half. Yeah. And then I like the way he handled Trey in the fourth quarter as well. Uh, you know, at one point, uh, I, I think I even commented on Twitter that, hey, LP is going to have to get Trey a break here at some point. I think a point guard specifically to play the whole fourth quarter is a huge ask just because of how exhausting ball handling initiation is. And I think, I think Brad uh, commented, you know, um, during the game and sort of our private messaging that I think Trey sat for an entire 75 seconds of gameplay yeah, uh, in the fourth quarter, you know. So, but, you know, he, but, uh, he carried four four timeouts pretty late into the game, so he gave himself something to work with if he needed it, you know. Um, and he used that user or lose that timeout. I think with about three forty five left, you you lose that third timeout if he gets under three minutes. And so, you know, my questions for you know Coach Pierce, and I always have to kind of qualify this that it's a bit silly for those of us who've never coached for even a millisecond in a professional setting to you know try to opine on these things, but you know you, you have right. to. You know, our readers and our listeners want that, you know, observation and stuff. But my big question for him, given that he's never been a head coach, as far as I know, at any level, 
was can he manage a game? And I thought in this game, he'd just roll with the punches. He had a plan. He, when he needed to kind of modify the plan on the fly, he did it. And, it, and I just, I never saw a moment where on the court or on the bench, anyone looked like they didn't know what the plan was and they didn't have confidence in the plan. And I, you know, so I have to, you know, shout him out a little bit too. Um, and that I, I thought he managed the game really well in this one. I like the way that Lloyd Pierce managed Kevin Herter's foul trouble because he already had Collins in a little bit of foul trouble in the first half, and then Herter got his third when he was playing excellently. But he's a guard; he's not terribly physical, and I don't know that he's all that foul prone. That you don't think you're worried about as with guards as much as your your interior players. But you know, I think his approach was he, he sat Kevin down with three fouls, but he only did it for like 90 seconds or two minutes or three minutes. It wasn't a really long break. And then he did put him back in in the first half when he was having a pretty good half, which I, I thought was smart. Just get him a blow, let him get his composure so he, you know, he doesn't pick up a, a stupid or tired fourth foul. But also, you know, don't limit yourself. You know, don't, don't take your hottest player uh, off the floor for foul trouble. You know, I thought it was kind of a win-win. Get him the rest. Get him a couple minutes to get composed, uh, but get him back in there when he's feeling pretty good too. And, and don't yeah. limit yourself. Yeah, and especially as key as Herder was to basically getting them going in the first yeah. quarter. They, you know, thankfully for the Hawks, the Memphis got off to a little bit of a slow start too, but Herder was almost perfect. You know, offensively yeah. passing, ball handling, and shooting yep. um, early in the game. And and I think he knew that he needed to keep. Kevin's confidence, you know, may protect and maintain his confidence some um, and his rhythm, you know, on top of that, it seemed to kind of probably be a factor in how he decided to handle Herder's foul trouble and such. And, you know, Herder was a studying presence um, the whole way. And I think, you know, Coach Pierce deserves a little credit for kind of keeping him in a good place and knowing that basically, you know, Rondo was technically available, but you know, as as a, as we look back on it now, it seems like that wasn't really the plan to play him in this game for whatever reason. Um, and you know, I think Coach Pierce knew that you know I, I'm going to need Herder, especially you know for those non-trade minutes. And then if you if you I've kind of worked back through the, the entire game now at this point, preparing to write about it. But if you look at the fourth quarter, you could also see that I think Trey and the coaching staff kind of knew that the Grizzlies were going to throw a more aggressive you know, defensive attack at Trey and Herter was out there to, to, to help with that in that situation. And, um, you know, and there are multiple times, you know, we can't break down every play and every, you know, and all that on the podcast like this, but, you know, when, going back and looking through it, I was surprised at how many times he was the key to helping a play kind of get unlocked um, just because of the fact that he knew where to be and he knew how to create. And he was a, a guy that Trey's going to trust to take care of the ball or create something if if the defense takes it out of his hands. Yep. Yeah, I, I I thought Kevin had a. It's funny if you look at Kevin's numbers from the preseason, just shooting numbers. It's like, oh, dear golly goodness! But I thought he played really well. I thought he was you know making really good decisions and uh, you know by and large with the you know we always bring up the same thing. It's like. Uh, you know he's he's not physical on his drives and he doesn't doesn't get free throws. Okay, well he takes one thing off the table. He he puts a lot of other things on the table. Um, you know a guy that can shoot, pass, drive, make good decisions. Like uh, he 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 does a lot of things. And I thought he played really well 
in spite of shooting poorly in the preseason and then tonight when when he's shooting well it's like you know that's that's a, a multi-dimensional approach at that point because you know that that just it, it's not just the fact that he's making shots but that he's going to use the fact that he's making shots to his advantage yeah absolutely and then you know what one play sticks out for me is he was I suppose coming off of a ball screen and attacking the paint, and he had a kind of a, a whip skip pass with his left hand with his all of his momentum and his weight carrying towards the baseline to the open shooter, you know, just above the right three-point break. So his non-dominant hand, all of his momentum carrying to the baseline, and it was right on target. Uh, and, it, you know, you could tell he read the play as it unfolded, you know, perfectly with perfect timing. And, you know, to be honest with you, you know, you know, even, you know, as well as, you know, Cam's development is going at this time, he still has a ways to go as a decision maker with the ball and things like that, you know. Um, but I don't know if anyone else besides him or Trey could have could have made that play on that possession. And when we talked about a few minutes ago, the Hawks trying to force the Grizzlies secondary and tertiary, you know, offensive players to make plays and, you know, and the Hawks had good results there. Herder's ability to make enough plays and hit enough shots and, you know, and make a pass like that, a skip pass with his non-dominant hand, that is, that's something that the Grizzlies didn't have. And that was, you know, I thought a major factor in, you know, maybe not who won the game, but putting the game in position to where Trey could go seize the, the win as a scorer at the end. It's one of those things like, you know, if you watch, I presume if you watch ESPN's you know, Sports Center recap, you're going to get all of the Trey stuff at the end. And what gets missed in in those uh, content forms is if Herder didn't do it, he, a lot of things. Uh, yeah, a lot of things. But <laughs> whether it's them or whoever else, but if Herder doesn't do what he did for the first say 45 minutes of the game, they're not in position to have Trey you know, seize that game at the end. And, and Herder. Deserves a lot of credit, and um, you know, and like we said, I thought Coach Pierce did a great job, kind of just managing Herder uh, through the game to keep him uh, engaged and in rhythm and all that. Yeah, when we when we do media for the Hawk stuff, uh, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of answers, there's a lot of cliches. Um, you know, trying to search and find the interesting nuggets takes some patience, uh, but. You know, one of the things that Trey lit upon uh, sometime this week, I can't remember the exact day, but it, it seems something that was a little more meaningful than a, than a lot of the things you hear. He, he said something to the effect of, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to set my teammates up as a playmaker, especially early in games. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's accidental. I he probably heard that message at some point during the preseason. It does feel like he's trying a little bit extra hard at the beginning of games. Uh, try to make sure everybody's involved. That's that's a good idea. But at the same time, you know, he's ready to embrace the role of of closer. And uh, maybe we start somewhere. Where, maybe we should finish somewhere around where we started, which is that uh, you know, as much as he tried to get people involved early, uh, he also has what it takes to, to embrace that role of being a closer, uh, whether it's, you know, scoring or passing, whatever, whatever's there to be taken off the table, he'll, he'll go and take it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And it's going to be, I think, fun to watch him 
navigate this season, his first season after being an all-star, his first season after getting a lot of the notoriety that he no doubt you know earned um, through his, I would say, more individual play last year. Not not because he's a, you know, not, I don't want to call him a selfish player, but they just didn't, he didn't have anything to work with <laughs> really right. last year. Right. And it, it is he nice to see. Yeah, yeah, he had John and, you know, uh, not a whole lot else. And then John missed a huge chunk of the season. Not that we right. need to revisit, you know, that in any detail. Mm-hmm. But but this year, you know, he, whether he's talking about it, you know, with the media, he, he's talking about, you know, how, not his words, but there are more mouths to feed now than there were last year. And there are more guys to, yes. you know, keep, you know, keep in mind in terms of getting everyone going, get everyone touches and things like that. And it's, you know, in game two to see him start kind of as a facilitator and the distributor more so and then still have the confidence and the instinct to close as a scorer is just that's encouraging. And it's, to me, especially impressive for a guy, again, two games into his third season. Yep. Uh, I think that's probably a, a good place to wrap up, just uh, to wrap up uh, odds and ends and loose notes. Um, Capella obviously didn't play again, and no real news on that front. When Lloyd Pierce was asked about it, he pretty much said something, and I'll paraphrase, uh, you know, that he's not the trainer, and he wasn't an expert on injuries, and that was pretty much it. Uh, No real revelations on that front. Um, So... (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's, it's, I, I'm sort of reporting the news, but the the news was that there was no news. It's just that, uh, you know, if if there was one person who was going to sort of tell us what was going on there, uh, we, we didn't get it from him. So don't really yeah. know what to say. You know, the official report is soreness. It's uh, Achilles soreness. It's on the leg that's not the leg that kept him out last season. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, it seems to have affected him most in between the preseason and the regular season. And other than that, it doesn't seem like we're going to find out a whole lot more about it unless something changes. Yeah. In the context of this game, with no Capella and no Gallinari and Gallinari is, you know, not a famous rim protector or anything like that, but he still is going to help as a body. And he's, he's just strong. Like he's, he's a 35 year old adult of substance. And, yeah. you know, and, when, and when bodies just... are pushing around for rebounds, he's going to help. And he's, and he's smart. He knows where to be, but right. no, you know, no, you know, a chunk of minutes at the five, a chunk of minutes at the four and the five in Gallo, you know, against a, a massive, strong guy like Valanciunas in this game, points in the paint, Hawks 44, Grizzlies 44, second chance points, Hawks 17, Grizzlies 18. So that's that's good team production performance and good team execution to stay neutral in those columns in a game where you intentionally started with a smaller lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of worked through the different lineups and the different four and five combinations that you had. So to neutralize what Memphis throws at you there, missing Capella and Gallinari, I think speaks to the, the team performance there. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on again, Glenn. It's it's good to hear it. I get I get too busy sometimes tweeting for, for Fox to see the X's and O's in real time until I go back and look at it again. Sure. So it, it's good to have another set of eyes watching what's happening. I appreciate your efforts here to help us out. Uh, always fun to, to talk Hawks with you, and I uh, appreciate having me back on. Hope we can do it again. All right. Have a good night, sir. Take care.